Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Kandavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're talking about Quentin Skinner, and we're doing two genealogies. Quentin Skinner, he often gives these lectures, and one of them is on the history of liberty as a concept, and the other is the history of the state as a concept. I had Alex watch both of those. They're easily available on YouTube because Quentin Skinner gives these talks all the time. So if this is one that you would like to, dear listener, participate in by consuming the content. This is a very easy episode to consume the content. It's just a couple of hour long lectures on YouTube. It's not a big book that you got to read through. Um, We're going to talk about Quentin Skinner. We're going to talk about where he fits in the history of things. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about his method and approach. I don't know exactly where we're going to go. Alex is going to help us decide. He's going to tell me what stuck out to him as he was listening to these talks. And that's going to decide where we go. So, Alex, what stuck out to you? Uh, one thing is the government not being the state. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the idea of the state as distinct from the government. The state is, of course, an abstraction in Habesian theory. And Skinner is drawing heavily on Hobbes in his genealogy of the state. And as listeners who've listened since the very beginning, might remember. The Habesian state is an abstraction that's created when a multitude of people who are different come together to form the state. And this multitude of people who are different from each other, they're fundamentally different. They're fractious. So they're not, say, a united people, like you might see in Carl Schmitt's theory or the theory of Siez in France. They don't have any unifying content. They're, it, it's, they're not part of the same culture necessarily. They don't have the same values, the same beliefs. They may conflict over all sorts of things, but they nonetheless decide for Hobbes that they don't want to die. And because they don't want to die, they'll come together and form this commonwealth where they all agree to obey a sovereign. And the sovereign personates the commonwealth. And therefore, the multitude is represented through the medium of the state, through the commonwealth, right? Which means the sovereign does not owe a duty of representation directly to the multitude. Because when the multitude comes together to form the state for Hobbes, the multitude makes a contract with itself. The individuals in the multitude agree together to obey the sovereign, but the sovereign is not a party to that contract. And because the sovereign is not a party to the contract, the sovereign doesn't owe them anything in return. They've come together and they've agreed among themselves, we're all going to obey this person or this assembly. And the sovereign is not at all bound by that. All the sovereign has to do is represent the commonwealth. The commonwealth comes into existence when the multitude comes together and agrees to form it. And so in this way, Habesian representation is mediated. It's not a direct relationship between the sovereign and the subject. It's mediated through the abstraction of the commonwealth. And that's why when we're talking about the state as opposed to the government, we're not talking about the particular people who are expressing the will of the state 
who are personifying the state, who are representing it, that would be the government. The state is the abstraction, right? The sovereign is the government. The sovereign is the person who is doing the governing. The state is the idea. And for Hobbes, this idea can only be real if there is a person who can give it life by personating it. So the government personates the state. The state exists only as an abstraction without a government to personate it. Yeah, so the, the better metaphor for representation is basically a character on a stage or an actor. The actor is the sovereign. The character played is the state. And we're the people in the audience, which is quite different from what you were saying, like with Schmidt, this kind of populist idea where it says, no, the state is not a fiction in that sense. There is a united people. There's a unified body. Uh, that sounds a lot like a lot of uh, British people who have been utilitarians and have had a similar idea. They don't want to have this idea of the state as a kind of fiction. I think the metaphor for them is more is more like, a, what do they call it? I think a visual metaphor, so like a snapshot of the body of the people, a picture, not a character on the stage. So it has to look like you and talk like you, as opposed to just personate your will. Right. If you have a people rather than a multitude, the people are united by having some kind of, of set traits as a people. So oftentimes people think of nations and they think of nations as having a bunch of thick cultural baggage associated with them, right? So if you have a nation and you want the state to represent the nation, you want the state to reflect the values that bind the nation together. So if the nation exists before the state, then the state can come in with a duty to reflect those values. And if the state doesn't reflect those values, then it's failing to represent the nation and the nation can potentially withdraw support for a particular political arrangement on that basis. Uh, Hobbes's idea is very different because for Hobbes, that kind of unity, the unity expressed in the idea of the nation, cannot exist before a state is created. And that really sets Hobbes apart from a lot of, of nationalists and populists who think of, their, of peoples as existing primordially in the long, long ago. For Hobbes, it's something that is constructed and created through the political process. It's the output rather than the input. And therefore, the state for Hobbes can't be answerable to some concept of the people because the people cannot precede the state. The people are instead a creation of the state. The multitude only becomes a people once the state plays this role of making it so. Do you think it's important to have that abstract dimension of state? So it's not just the apparatus of government. Uh, it is this person. And yeah, it's, it's, it's more about identity. So you can say things like, yeah, I did that bad action, but I'm no longer that bad person. So I'm still legitimate as a state. Can a populist make that move? Yeah, so th this is a, an interesting question. So Skinner thinks it's very important that we take the state seriously as something which can be real and therefore can be responsible for what it does. So if the state is made real through this process, if it becomes real, then the state can be held responsible. Now, against Skinner... My old supervisor, David Runciman, argues that 
the state cannot actually become a person through Hobbes's process in a real sense. The state can only be a person by fiction. So the idea of the state as a person for David Runciman is that the state is just ideologically a person, that it plays this, uh, it, we, we think of it fictionally as a person and the fiction of the state being a person has certain uses, but it's not true. Quentin Skinner, on the other hand, wants to argue that it actually is true that the state does become a person through this process. So it's kind of a question of, is the state an artificial person? So is it something that is made into a person through Hobbes's process? Or is it a person by fiction, a fictional person that isn't real? Uh, my old friend, Sean Fleming, uh, from, uh, from Cambridge, he wrote a book called Leviathan on a Leash, and he's got a whole chapter where he discusses some of the differences between Skinner and Runciman's interpretations of Hobbes. Fascinating, fascinating book. Smart guy, Sean Fleming. Smart guy. We should have him on sometime. Always wanted to have him on. Maybe we should do that sometime. Call him up. But yeah, uh, big debate in the Hobbes literature about whether Hobbes's state is artificially a person or fictionally a person. Alex looks like he has a thought. Do, do the utilitarians basically want to say, like nowadays still, that there are no fictions when it comes to the state? Stop theorizing about abstract things. And then could you then counter that and say, well, anything with an identity has to be abstract? Yeah. So one of the things that Quentin says in his lecture on the state is that utilitarians in particular don't like these abstractions. And I think you could say a little bit more broadly that hardcore empiricists tend to not like these abstractions. Hardcore empiricists, and the utilitarians are very hardcore empiricists, they don't like abstractions that aren't reducible to something concrete that you can sense, that you can identify in the world. Right. So for the utilitarians, morality is dissolved into pleasure and pain, appetites and aversions, desires. So the utilitarian does not want to acknowledge uh, the possibility of concepts that cannot be dissolved into those things. Uh, similarly, a lot of empiricists resist concepts that are not uh, dissolvable into individuals or groups. So when people criticize, say, methodological individualism or liberal individualism, they are typically criticizing this quintessentially empiricist move to dissolve anything that isn't reducible into individuals and groups, into individuals and groups, uh, and if it can't be dissolved, uh, then to throw it out. So something like the state, the impulse for David, who's more empirically inclined, I think, is to say that uh, surely the state, when we're talking about the state, we can only really talk about the particular people or groups that are personating it. That's all the state really is. The idea of the state existing beyond that might be useful as a fiction, especially for legitimating government. But the idea of the state is there principally to legitimate the government rather than as a freestanding abstract entity. Skinner wants to argue that there really is a, a, an abstract entity there, because he thinks if we can say there really is an abstract entity, that 
enables us to do some things politically, like hold the state responsible for its behavior that are harder to do if when we're talking about state responsibility, we can only talk about the individuals who have been holding government power. And Sean's book is very much centered on this issue because Sean is interested in in what sense states can be responsible for things that they do. Hence, Leviathan on a leash, the leash being this concept of state responsibility. So if the state uh, you know, exists in Skinner's sense, then the state would be straightforwardly responsible. But it would be unclear exactly uh, who, when the state is responsible, who is it that actually has to pay? Conversely, if you take it in David's direction, if the state uh, doesn't exist except by fiction, then if we're going to say that the state is responsible, we must mean that certain concrete, you know, that the government, the concrete government, in some way has to bear responsibility for things that it didn't do that were done by previous governments. And so then we have to work out how is it that responsibility can be transferred from one set of people, one government, to another government if we don't take this idea of the state as anything more than a fiction. So regardless of which direction you go, whether you take it in the Skinner direction or the David direction, it's hard to determine what it means for the state to be responsible and who concretely has to pay when the state is responsible for something. Is it everybody in the society? Is it the government? And are there occasions where you would hold specific individuals or specific governments responsible for the actions that are done in the name of the state? Because one of Hobbes' ideas is, is that there's a difference between the natural person and the artificial person. So when you're the sovereign, when you're personating the state, when you are acting as the artificial person, you're acting as the representative of the state, as the sovereign representative. Uh, and when you are just acting for yourself, you're acting as the natural person, as the person that you are. And when a sovereign comes into being, the sovereign has to wear these two faces. As Alex was saying, he wears this mask. The mask is the mask of the artificial person of the state. It leads to a question, when you've you know, voted out a government... And that person who was previously personating the state is no longer in that role. Can they, as a natural person, be held responsible for things they did while they were wearing the mask of the state? It is a very difficult set of questions. I would want to bring Sean on to, if we were to really do that uh, justice. I think I would have to bring, bring Sean on and talk to Sean about coming on to do that right. And maybe at some point we'll do that. Yeah. Does the fictional theory allow you to be more hypocritical or say that you ought to be hypocritical in a kind of Machiavellian sense, like justice demands you to uh, basically not always owe up to your mistakes or your lies? Like with Boris admitting that he had that Christmas party, perhaps he ought not to. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I think is very remarkable about David Runciman's view of politics is that David builds hypocrisy into politics and especially into liberal politics as an essential feature uh, rather than a bug. Uh, 
So for David, it's really not possible to have democratic politics without hypocrisy, because a lot of the concepts that we use in democratic politics don't really work if we take them literally. And therefore, we have to kind of tell these stories. And sometimes I use a language uh, on previous episodes, the, the expression legitimation stories for these kinds of narratives about why the government is acceptable that are not literally true, but which you have to persuade lots of people of to have order. And so in a similar way, the state can be useful as a fiction, regardless of whether it's real. But of course, if it, if it is real, uh, then that makes it work better as a fiction, <laughs> if you can persuade people that it's real. So Skinner's perspective might be useful or even necessary if you really want people to treat the state as a fictional person, if they believe that it is actually an artificial person, it might be easier for them to behave in the way that they need to behave for it to work as a fictional person. If you catch my drift. It, it is an example of the hypocrisy at the very beginning, um, evident in not the fictional theory, but also the populist theory. So parliamentarians in the 1600s, saying that the king should be deposed, but at the same time, not claiming to have any right to revolt or to depose kings. Yeah, the populist theory, of course, relies on the fiction that nations have existed since time immemorial, or that we can think of peoples as having this continuity across time. And I think it's obvious to anybody who spends any time really thinking about the history of ideas of European nations, that this is not True. To start, you know, just think for a minute about the fact that in London there's a statue of Boudicca, right? Now, Boudicca is a Briton uh, from prior to the British invasion. So, Boudicca is a Celt. Now, the English are the Angles and the Saxons. Those are tribes from Germany. So, Boudicca is not an Angle or a Saxon, so she's not British in the contemporary sense of British. She's a Celt, right? The Celts are, of course, the subject populations of Britain initially, the Welsh, the Scottish, the Irish. It's not as if this idea of Britishness straightforwardly applies to all of these people at once. That's a construct that has been constructed over many centuries, the idea that all of these different populations are British. Now, add to this, of course, that the Angles and the Saxons were in turn conquered by the Normans, the Normans who come from Normandy in France, but who are originally Vikings and therefore Scandinavians. So when we talk about what it means to be British, there's Celts, there's Romans, there's Angles, there's Saxons, there's French, there's Scandinavians. So already it's a huge hodgepodge of different things. Similarly, when, say, the French have their statues of Vercingetorix. Vercingetorix is a Celt, and the French are Franks. The Franks are originally Germans who came into France in response to the Hunnic invasion. So you, know, you have Celts, and then you have Romans, and then you have Franks. And of course, the Franks under Charlemagne established a kingdom that included both France and Germany. So both the French and the Germans are Franks. So are the French and the Germans different nations? 
And of course, the Germans, they like to have the statues of Arminius, the German who got all of those Roman legionaries killed in the Teutoburg Forest. But the contemporary Germans are peoples who moved into Germany much later than that. The original Germanic tribes were pushed out of Germany by the movement of the Huns. You know, those original German tribes included groups like the Angles and the Saxons and the Franks. So are the Germans the tribes that left Germany? Are they the tribes that came to Germany? Who are the Germans? Are they the people who speak German? Because that's a happy accident. There are lots of Germans that don't speak German. <laughs> so anytime you, you really spend any time thinking about these ideas of European nation, they fall apart very quickly. They, they're totally fictitious, right? But they've been very useful to legitimating governments in these territories. And therefore, it's very important to these governments that these ideas be maintained. And the idea of the nation is so appealing to people that it's very difficult to persuade people to abandon it, even though it doesn't withstand any scrutiny at all. If you spend five seconds on the idea of the nation, it completely falls apart. Any nation does. But people are so attached to it because it's so satisfying that you can't get rid of it politically. And attempts to get rid of it politically have failed repeatedly. Well, maybe it's kind of a synonym for the state. When people say that the election gives the state legitimacy, you could say, oh, no, it's just the government that's getting legitimate and the state's this fictional person. But yeah, maybe the maybe that works as well. Yeah, the thing is, in the populist theory that Skinner talks about in this lecture, there isn't a whole lot of need for the state because if you already have a nation, then the government can answer directly to the nation. If the nation is already a unified thing, then the government's job is to represent the nation. The abstraction of the state doesn't really need to do a lot of work. And I think that's another reason why the populist theory, the kind of folk theory, is appealing because it doesn't rely on this abstract third thing. And the abstract third thing, because it's abstract, it's something that is not intuitive to a lot of people. And I think there are a lot of people for whom, especially today in Europe, because contemporary Europe is very empiricist in its kind of base assumptions about the world and the way it works. A theory which requires bringing in an abstraction seems to introduce unnecessary complexity into the relationship. What is, of course, being missed is that the nation is clearly also a bullshit concept. So if you want to say, well, I don't like the state, the state is too abstract, the nation is, is not at all more defensible than the state as a, a concept around which to build. It's just that the idea of the nation has been heavily propagandized into people, whereas the idea of the state, not so much, especially lately. If there was a concept of a nation that kind of bound people in allegiance to each other, when the Spanish invaded Rome as Catholics... They perhaps wouldn't have sacked the city and done anything that soldiers usually do to cities. I mean, is Hobbes saying that when we're solitary by nature, he's not saying that we don't associate, but the lines we do associate on, for example, the Spanish and the Romans both being Catholic, are basically arbitrary and they can break down at any time. Or is a solitariness yeah, literally like down. we never associate? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So we associate, but our associations are alliances of convenience for Hobbes. So if we don't have a government to keep us all in awe, then we can't be relied upon to keep our word because we can't be reliably punished for breaking our word. 
And so once it becomes advantageous to us to break our word, we'll often break it. In part because in many of the situations where it's advantageous for us to break our word, it might also be advantageous for the other party to break their word. And questions, you know, then it becomes a question of who's going to shoot first. And once it's a question of who's going to shoot first, the logic is to always be the one who shoots first. The way I often would tell the story to first year students, this is back when Brexit was happening, is, is what if the queen tries to resist Brexit? And says that uh, Boris is a criminal for trying to do Brexit, right? Uh, if that happens, then the Queen would say, order Boris Johnson's arrest. And Boris, the only way that he could defend himself in that situation would be to order the Queen's arrest. So then the soldier has to decide who to arrest. And if the soldiers encounter each other, say some soldiers are going to arrest the Queen and other soldiers are going to arrest Boris and they meet in the corridor. Whoever shoots first is probably going to win. And this is why, perhaps, it's very important to not divide the sovereignty, to not make it unclear who gets to arrest whom in this situation. Perhaps you always want it to be obvious who has the authority to do the arresting in a constitutional crisis, because if you don't make it obvious, then the crisis can easily escalate into a civil conflict. Yeah, and the other point is also that it doesn't matter so much who wins. What matters is that someone does win. And the, yeah. yeah, the absolute power is there. So when people talk about absolutism like that, and then they say that absolutism is what birthed democracy, or is the time period where democracy came out was absolutist, that makes sense. But then some people go further and say that democracy is absolutist in character. And that's a bit confusing. Yeah, it's an interesting argument, isn't it? Well, if you think of, of the demos as being a united people, that speaks with one voice, then it can easily give rise to forms of absolutism. If the demos is one people that speaks with one voice, then you don't really need to worry very much about minorities. So when we have ideas of the nation that are dominating, very often those who don't agree, those who are dissenters or in the minority, can easily be framed as uh, not properly part of the nation, as an internal enemy in, say, Carl Schmitt's language. Sometimes efforts are made to reconcile the idea of the nation with pluralism. And when we've done, I've done episodes in the past about Max Weber, who is very interested in reconciling nationalism with liberalism. But as Weber points out, that's a very uneasy relationship because the nation is something that wants to be unitary, unified, and concrete so that it can be represented. Whereas pluralism is necessarily more like Hobbes's multitude, fractious, different and therefore very difficult to represent. So if you base the legitimacy of the state on the idea that it represents the nation, and then you make the nation liberal and pluralist, the nation will lose its cohesive character. It then becomes harder for it to be represented by the state, and the whole legitimation narrative of, of nation states breaks down. Which is why pluralism more easily sits alongside theories of the state that don't require a primordial national people that are instead built around, say, a thinner commitment to a political system like, say, Habermas's constitutional patriotism or Quentin Skinner's old-fashioned old small-R republicanism, the idea of a republic in which the commitment is to the political system, the, the republican system of government, rather than to 
a specific culture. And that's very much a throwback to old ideas of empire, empires in which the king is, is meant to stand in for a diversity of different subjects. Or where the Roman emperor stands in for a diversity of different subjects. And then we have republicanism and monarchy as two not so different systems, but which are often contrasted. Was it Machiavelli who said that it's either or and that one is freedom and one is servitude or not? Well, certainly Quentin Skinner takes the view that Machiavelli is quite down on monarchy as a deeply inferior replacement for republics. Uh, and usually when, when we, we talk Machiavelli, I kind of make the case that if, if Machiavelli is interested in the pursuit of glory, a republic allows lots of people to pursue glory while a monarchy does not. And so the advantage of a republic is that the glory is, is more easily pursued by a larger set of people. What about uh, English republicanism and the space for monarchy there? Because I, I don't know, like, is, is natural law less or more uh, republican than common law? Thinking about the 1600s especially. Well, nat natural law is a, is a little bit tricky because of this concept of the natural and, and the concept of the natural being such a fungible concept. Right? Every legitimation narrative has a term in it that is difficult to define, but that does a huge amount of work. So when we were talking about the popular theory of the nation, right, the term the nation does an enormous amount of work. And when you really dig into the nation, you find that there is no way of defining it which straightforwardly works. Every way of doing it involves kind of bullshitting and doing some hypocritical stuff to get a concept that works politically, but isn't true in any deeper, more fundamental sense. Similar kinds of accusations can be made you know, about, say, the state. When we talk about you know, natural law, now it's a question of what's natural. So in natural law theories, the state is illegitimate if it asks you to do things that are against nature. So for instance, if the state creates a situation where there's no food available to you and it expects you not to steal food, it's expecting you to behave in an unnatural way because eating is part of what people naturally have to do to survive. Now, in uh, a lot of Early natural law theories focus on man attaining a scholasticist ultimate end. So if you look at, say, Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas thinks that we have a kind of ultimate purpose, which is to develop our reason so that we can acquire the virtues, drawing on Aristotle. So for Aquinas, it's natural for us to do these things, and therefore the state needs to behave in such a way that this is facilitated. If the state gets in the way of, our, of us cultivating our reason, then the state is making unnatural demands on us. Obviously, yeah, the natural being such a fungible concept uh, in Roman law, it's a bit confusing. They define slavery as, I think, against nature, but also introduced by the laws of nature. So like two contradictory yeah. statements in the same section. Yes, because there's legal legal slavery, and then there's the idea of natural slavery, which of course has its origins in Aristotle. And for Aristotle, see, the concept of the natural is so tricky. For Aristotle, 
if you have slaves, then that gives you more free time. And if you have more free time, you can use that to engage in contemplation and cultivate your reason. And if you don't have leisure time, then you can't possibly cultivate your reason. And since in Aristotle's time, the easiest way to get leisure time is to have slaves, it's easy for Aristotle to make the conceptual move that slavery is natural and that attempts to abolish slavery would prevent people from doing philosophy, from having time to contemplate, and would therefore be unnatural interventions. So if you have that kind of view of what's natural, then it not only do you have a justification for slavery, but it, it becomes seriously unnatural for anyone to try to intervene to get rid of slavery in any way. And any kind of abolitionism is an unnatural move on that kind of view. And of course, as we move into the early modern period and we start talking about English Republicans, humanists, Protestants, we start to get a breakdown in the consensus over what the natural means, because as the Catholic Church's power wanes, its ability to curate the discussion about what's natural deteriorates. And so then you start getting a lot of very different schools of thought about what the natural means. So for instance, Hobbes, Hobbes is someone who makes heavy reference to the idea of natural rights, natural laws. Hobbes says that it's the law of nature for us to seek peace because you know, we have to survive as a prerequisite for doing anything else. Right? And you know, Aquinas argues that you can steal bread if you need to in cases of extreme need because, of course, you have to survive to do anything else. Hobbes uses this idea you know, to make the case that what's natural is to pursue survival and that if you take this seriously, the logic of this is that you'll end up giving yourself this absolutist state. Right? Conversely, if you're coming at it from a Republican angle, if you think that part of you know, cultivating your reason and cultivating your virtue is living in a republic and that if you're in a, a monarchy, you are subject to a kind of despotism that and you're dominated and therefore you develop a servility that would conflict with potentially developing your reason, developing your virtue. So coming at it from a Republican angle, Hobbes's prescription would be precisely unnatural because Hobbes's prescription would put you in a position of servitude, which prevents you from developing your reason. But Hobbes will say, but how can you possibly develop your reason if you're not alive? And my prescription is better for your survival. So now all of a sudden you've got views of the natural, which are precisely opposite one another. And this only gets worse as time goes on. People come out after Hobbes. You know, Hume says that it's natural for us to steal from strangers and give to our family and friends because we have natural reasons to prefer the people that we know to the people that we don't. Immanuel Kant argues that it's natural for us to follow universal laws of human reason that uh, universal moral imperatives, which of course would conflict with stealing from strangers to give to your family and friends, the utilitarians come out with, you know, it's just natural to avoid pain and seek pleasure. And all the rest of this is a bunch of bullshit. And the reason the utilitarians make this move is that as the 1700s wear on, this debate about what's natural becomes more and more of a mess. Instead of reconstituting a new consensus about what's natural, the consensus becomes more and more frayed, more and more broken. And so because this consensus breaks down, the natural stops being able to provide this adjudicating role. So once a concept like the natural becomes too contested, it becomes difficult to use it in political legitimation narratives. You therefore have to come up with other terms that can do the same work. The idea of the nation 
becomes popular as the concept of the natural is fading out. The natural is a concept which cuts across nations, cuts across group distinctions. Everybody's human. Everybody is potentially you know, a, a natural person. So if you say it's natural for people to do this or to need that, that can apply to anybody. And so a state can say, you know, if you're, say, the Habsburg emperor, you can say that you are administering to the natural needs of all of your subjects, regardless of what religion they practice, uh, regardless of what their language is, regardless of their ethnicity. You can make a case that since all people have the same natural needs, you're taking care of all of them. That doesn't work nearly as well with something like the concept of the nation. And, uh, you know, there are, of course, other concepts that were big before the concept of the natural. I think that in the Roman period, ideas of consensus were more important than the concept of the natural in legitimating, say, Roman emperors. Uh, and that would include, of course, Byzantine emperors as well. So, a lot of different concepts have played this role, but once it becomes too contested, once it breaks down, you have to go get something else. Does the common law fill in that vacuum as a concept? I think the, the common law, it's interesting because common law often draws on ideas of the natural uh, and of what it's, it's reasonable for people to do. It still relies on a lot of things that are not necessarily codified uh, in contrast to civil law which is based more on the civil authority and what specifically the civil authority has said which is interesting because natural law sounds i think more like common law than it does civil law uh, and yet oftentimes natural law theorists would claim that they were working with roman ideas and certainly ideas of natural law and ideas of the natural are in roman thought you know, certainly in Ciceronian thought. But one of the things that I think is important to remember is that accounts of Roman thought that come from the early modern theorists are not one-to-one -one the same as the actual original Roman thought. And Cicero, while he's a big figure in Latin literature, his view of Roman politics was not necessarily the dominant view in ancient Rome. And it's important to remember that Cicero is killed. He's killed. Uh, he loses. And he loses in part because his views do not prevail in that context. But his position as a political theorist is extremely influential. And so early modern theorists who are looking back on him, and they often look back on other Stoic writers like Seneca, who was also killed, like Tacitus, who was politically marginalized. They tend to draw on Roman writers who were not actually the ones at the center of things. The Romans who were at the center of things didn't have so much time to write. They were busy doing things, and they were doing things often on the basis of different principles from those of the people who were doing the writing. And oftentimes you can discern Roman ideology more effectively, not from Latin writers of the period, but from looking at what concretely emperors did, what the specific relationships were between emperors and the composite cities and provinces. How did the leaders of cities interact with emperors? How did governors interact with emperors? That's uh, why I'm a big fan of Clifford Ando's book uh, about imperial ideology in the provinces. It's a great Great study of just the, the everyday interactions between emperors and subjects. Would the everyday mean a focus on what kind of resources are being used for people's livelihoods 
and yeah, how much is going back and forth between different provinces. You know, what, what kinds of concepts are actually being invoked in communications between emperors and cities, emperors and provinces? Uh, what, what is doing the conceptual work of legitimating the emperor? What is the emperor claiming to do for the subjects? The emperor is not generally saying, I am following natural law. Uh, I am doing what is natural. The emperor is saying, I'm maintaining the peace. Look, I won this battle somewhere far away. Send you know, a gift tax acknowledging the benefit you've received from the fact that we won this battle. Right. Uh, look, I won this battle. See, I have the traits and the, and the characteristics of, of Augustus. I am like him. Remember that I'm like him and don't support usurpers. That's what's being communicated. Is that that diff different from North Korea? In the sense that it's absolutist, but it's lost the, yeah, the complete fear in the informants. Or maybe not. You couldn't dissent. Well, uh, yeah, the, the North Korean government is totalitarian in a way that the Roman Empire was not, because the Roman Empire does not have the kind of sophisticated intelligence services that you associate with modern countries like North Korea. In the Roman case, it's very, there is a system, of course, for getting information through the, there's a postal service in the Roman Empire where you change horses and you can take stuff relatively quickly from place to place by changing horses at these horse changes. But you, because of the distances and because of the kind of technology that you have, it takes a long time for information to get places. And so more often than not, local elites are not going to be in a kind of day-to-day -day conversation with an emperor. They will receive an order from the emperor. They will decide how to implement that order in a way which fits the conditions in their particular place. If an emperor gives orders that don't fit the conditions, and this would be the part of, of Roman behavior that is the closest to something like natural law theory, which is that governors, if the order is just unrealistic where they are, they often don't implement it or they implement it in a tokenistic way. And the emperor doesn't usually do anything about that because the emperor usually defers to the local expertise of governors about the conditions in their province. So if, say, as you see this especially in the period when they're fighting about religion, if an emperor orders a ban on animal sacrifice, say a Christian emperor makes a ban on that, if you're in a province where animal sacrifice is still extremely commonly practiced and it would be really quite difficult to try to stop it, you might just not implement that order. And so what we find is that the order to stop doing animal sacrifice is made over and over and over again in Roman history, many, many times by many different emperors. But most of the time, it doesn't translate into a whole lot of, of stoppages. If the emperor is personally visiting, you might make sure no animal sacrifices occur while he's in town, right? Uh, but you'll say, you know, you're making a good faith effort, but you want to preserve the peace because no emperor wants the peace to be disturbed. Because if the peace is disturbed, then that makes the emperor appear to lack the consensus. So 
emperors would often defer to governors in these matters if there was a risk of violence. And just like in the 1600s, the toleration of religious differences is not liberty. It's not the value of liberty invoked to do that. It's just pure order, pure necessity. Yeah. Yeah. Made largely in terms of order. And I think one of the things that separates a lot of contemporary political theory and even medieval political theory from ancient theory is that ancient theory tends to put an emphasis on order just straightforwardly and explicitly and to justify states and state behavior in terms of securing order. So the Romans straightforwardly make arguments in terms of peace. Hobbes, I think the thing about Hobbes that's the most old school and ancient is that Hobbes straightforwardly makes an argument in terms of peace without trying to paper over it in any other kind of language. Uh, a lot of medieval theorists will want the state to also administer to God in some way. And a lot of contemporary theorists will want the state to be representative, to represent the nation. But old school theories don't ask for these additional positive things from states. They ask for peace and not a whole lot else. That doesn't make them more honest, does it? Is that just anachronism? Well, David, David would make the case that, that uh, maybe it does, I think. Uh, for David, straightforwardly saying that this is about that the state is about using violence to make peace. Uh, that is blatantly what states do. The thing is, once you say the state is about using violence to make peace, it becomes quite easy to use violence because you've straightforwardly said that's what it's for. If you paper over it in other language and say the state is here to represent you, the state is here to uh, help achieve God's will on earth, that potentially obligates you to avoid violence in many situations so that you can maintain the further narrative, the further story that the state exists to accomplish these other positive ends. And so introducing these other positive ends, even if it's not really the case that the state really exists to achieve them, tends to have a moderating effect on the state's behavior. This is why David thinks hypocrisy is so important. The state needs to have these hypocritical commitments to do things that it isn't in practice going to do so that people can demand that the state at least appear to be trying to do them. If the state at least appears to be trying to do them, then it can't be as violent or as cruel or as blatant in its behavior because it has to maintain this facade of being interested in, in compassion, interested in benevolence. Or interested in my vote. Right, or interested in your vote. So the more the state is weighed down by these moral commitments, the harder it is for the state to just use violence to achieve political ends. But then why, why would we say it's uh, hypocrisy or kind of fictional theory explains that when we could just turn to the populace and say, yeah, look, the state is clearly responding to us asking uh, it to obey our vote yeah, and our will. And sure, there's always going to be some hypocrisy, but it's better explained by, you know, just in honest terms as a populist thing rather than like a fictional hypocrisy kind of thing. Well, I think what, what bothers Quentin Skinner about that populist theory is that it doesn't give the idea of the state enough to do. 
And because it doesn't give the idea of the state enough to do, I mean, certainly nationalists do have a notion of the nation state, but even when they talk about it, the word nation is appendage to the word state. Uh, and when they're saying nation state, they really mean the government that represents the nation. This idea of there being a state which does the work of unifying people, you don't need that in the populist theory because the nation is already unified and the nation gives itself a constitution, gives itself a government. And I think that the trouble with that idea, it's the trouble with Carl Schmitt. It's the trouble with a lot of these kinds of ideas. In practice, this doesn't acknowledge the level of real diversity that you get in politics. When Hobbes says that we're fractious and multitudinous, he's right about that. We are not as heavily unified together by default as the idea of the nation suggests that we are. And so once you introduce this idea of the nation and you try to do it through the nation, you inevitably run into the problem that you are not able to maintain the unity in society necessary to make that abstraction work. And this is what happened with the idea of the natural in the Middle Ages. It was an idea that required a level of consensus that could not be sustained. Similarly, the nation requires a level of consensus that cannot be sustained. That's why Quentin Skinner, I think, wants a thinner kind of political unity around the idea of a Republican system. And it's also why his conception of liberty, rather than returning to uh, classical Republican ideas about realizing our potential philosophically, like, say, Aristotle would do or Plato would do, Quentin Skinner instead, in his discussion of liberty, pitches liberty as non-domination. So he focuses on the aspect of ancient republics in which the citizen is free from slavery, rather than on what the citizen is meant to do with the free time. And for most classical Republicans, yeah, the citizen is free from slavery so that the citizen can do con con concrete things, so that the citizen can serve the state, so that the citizen can participate in politics, so that the citizen can do philosophy, cultivate their talents, develop their character. That's why the citizen is freed from slavery, so that the citizen has time to do those things. And the citizen needs slaves on these theories to do those things. Because without slaves, there won't be enough time to do all of that. Quentin Skinner wants to revive republicanism, but he doesn't want to revive that part of it. So he instead focuses on non-domination, just on the being free from slavery. He then leaves it open to people to decide what they should do once they're freed from domination. And in that respect, he combines elements of classical republicanism with contemporary liberalism. Because he keeps the liberal pluralism, this focus on allowing people to come up with lots of different reasons to be alive and lots of different reasons to things to do in life, but combining that with Republican non-domination. And that allows him to have an account of what the state is doing that is freed from the idea of unity that you get in the populist theory and freed from the consensus around the idea of the natural or the consensus around the idea that we all have one common purpose that you have in medieval and in some versions of classical theory. That's what I would say is really distinctive about Skinnerian republicanism. It's this fusion of ancient with modern for the purposes of saving modernity from the idea of the nation state. But it's not you know, a cosmopolitan theory, which just supposes that we don't need any real basis for unity. It instead draws on Republican ideas about how we might create a thinner unity and uses that to step in for the nation. 
an interesting idea. And I think a lot of people who view the nation state theory as not really workable are drawn to this because it's a more plausible alternative to the nation state than just straight cosmopolitanism. Because straight cosmopolitanism supposes that we will feel this sense of unity for largely moralistic reasons without giving any kind of political account of how the unity is created or sustained. And that's what makes pure cosmopolitanism extremely utopian and fanciful because there's no substantive basis for the unity that cosmopolitans call for. In the case of the small r Republicans, it's about unifying us around a particular political entity. And it's interesting because it's not that different from, say, constitutional patriotism in Habermas's view, uh, in the Eurocommunist view. The, of course, Habermas and the Eurocommunists are caught up in the European Union, and the European Union has badly failed to, I think, to actually create a sense of a common European political system, which all citizens of Europe are able to meaningfully participate in. The, the European Union is not a small R republic in the Skinnerian sense. But this idea that Habermas had that there could be a European-wide commitment to a common civic culture, not a substantive deep culture, but a civic culture around a particular political system. That is very much a similarity between those two theorists. Is this tying into this liberty order dialectic where you need order before liberty? Or some people would say that liberty gives order or is that not a good thing to describe this? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting, yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, can you say a little bit more about... Mm, I think... About how they might relate. Order usually is like property relations and yeah, just a market being there. And then, you, no, yeah, order is like the property relations in the courts. And then the liberty is the freedom to choose your job and to sell here and there, free enterprise. Yeah, interesting. So you kind of used order there in a, in a sort of rule of law sense. In a, in a kind of the rule of law sense that we might see in Hayek, for instance, uh, who focuses on the maintenance of a, of a market and of property relations. Stable expectations. Uh, which is, yeah, yeah. And you know, when, uh, when we talk about things that modern democracies are expected to institutionally be able to do, credibility, making credible commitments, predictability, I think that's all linked. Now, you can come at it from the point of view of having markets behave in a way that is in accordance with what people expect. You can also come at it from the opposite side, which is states not being constantly at war with each other because political violence disrupts trade and disrupts markets. So there's both you know, a kind of economic predictability and an international relations predictability, and those things need each other for both to be predictable. The trouble, of course, is that sometimes you get into periods where states need to be dynamic and they need to change these relationships because the relationships have become increasingly moribund or, or uh, you know, stop working. And so states have to be able to pivot between credibility and dynamism and, and delivering change. So I think you know, liberty often tries to put the responsibility to deliver the change onto the private sector. So the market is supposed to be the dynamic thing that creates the change, and the state is supposed to be a, a state of affairs, a stable condition 
and the market is supposed to deliver all of the change. But sometimes you get into situations where the market itself becomes an obstacle to delivering change. Uh, you know, as, as Marx would argue, sometimes the market becomes fettered, where the incentive structure that causes the market to deliver change breaks down, and the market instead becomes an impediment to change. And in those kinds of situations, the state has to be able to step in. And if the state isn't able to step in, oftentimes the dysfunction within the market will spill out into international conflict and lead to war. And then, of course, if war happens, then the market will be disrupted not by the state's behavior, but by war. And this comes back to some of uh, you know, Edmund's ideas of a trade war cycle, that if trade gets out of hand to the point where the state can't regulate it, it will cause problems that lead to war. And then war becomes the regulation. If the market will not accept regulation by states, the market will have to accept disruption due to war. And uh, so... Yeah, I think that on a lot of theories of order and liberty that rest on a kind of liberal public-private distinction, say like Adam Smith's theory, for instance, in Adam Smith's account, a lot of what needs to be done morally and culturally is meant to occur in the private sector through civil society organizations. We're supposed to develop our character in the private sector. Therefore, the state isn't responsible for the development of our character. And this is a, a way that liberals often avoid some of the issues that come up in ancient and medieval thought. Ancient and medieval theorists think that if the state isn't involved in the character development and isn't organizing society to produce particular kinds of people, that decadence will set in, that people will grow gradually less and less virtuous, and that this collapse of virtue will eventually result in trouble for the state. Smith argues that if you have a robust private sector, a robust civil society, that private sector can take care of moral development on its own, that you can have a marketplace of different civil society organizations offering different kinds of, of social and moral development. People can choose for themselves which organizations to join and hang out in. And therefore, that cultivation can be taken care of through a kind of social marketplace. Uh, a, a very uh, similar idea to you know, just kind of letting people get on the internet and letting people look around and see uh, what they're interested in and have that kind of take care of it. If you get dysfunction in the way that that civil marketplace or that marketplace of ideas works, if, you get, if that becomes dysfunctional, uh, or if it becomes itself too much dominated by the people who are participating in it needing to make money, that can cause trouble. If you think about the way Christianity has evolved in the United States, part of the reason why Christianity is still around is that there's a denominational marketplace in the United States. There is a lot of different denominations of Christianity all competing with each other for adherence. This forces them to develop competitively, right? And the marketplace has kept Christianity very vital by forcing Christian denominations to compete with each other. In the course of doing this, though, the denominations have become more built around attracting adherence than they are necessarily built around delivering on values. So you have a lot of prosperity preaching. You have a lot of churches that are kind of culty and potentially take advantage of their members. So on the one hand, having a marketplace for religion, having a marketplace for moral development has kept Christianity relevant in the United States, but it's also debased Christianity and made it a much less effective way of actually cultivating the character of people. And so when you leave things to the market, I think uh, you know, 
yes, you'll be able to to keep the church relevant if you marketize the church, but you will also, to a significant degree, vulgarize it. And I think that has been the kind of uh, upshot of the Adam Smith theory that yes, uh, in a in a diverse civil society, there's lots of organizations for people to join, but a lot of those organizations are more oriented around attracting adherents than they are in actually producing the kinds of traits that are potentially necessary for people to live good lives. However, our political system is designed to work even if all of the people in it are terrible. So it, I don't think it necessarily produces the kind of decadence collapse narrative that a lot of conservatives think it produces. A lot of conservatives, if they say there's a decline in virtue, they think that will inevitably produce a decline in the state. Uh, but if the state is designed in such a way that it doesn't require virtuous people to stick around, then you can have for a very long period of time a society that's in many ways highly dysfunctional. So how can states do that? Because in order to interpret the spirit of the law in that virtuous sense, you will surely need virtuous characters, no? Otherwise, even if the letter of the law is virtuous, you'll lose that virtuous spirit. Yeah, well, I think that we probably have, to a significant degree in this country, lost the virtuous spirit. And yet the United States doesn't go away. The United States doesn't go away, even though there are lots of things that are wrong with it. And one of the things that's been fascinating about critical theory uh, over the last 60, 70 years is that most of the things that the critical theorists say about what's wrong with the United States are true. Most of the things that you know, biopolitical critics say are true. Most of the things Marxists say negatively about the United States are true. Most of the critiques of the United States are true. And yet that doesn't mean it goes away <laughs> because uh, a state can be in many different ways morally dissatisfying and still accomplish the end of securing order because there isn't this straightforward relationship between order maintenance and being good. It's not that straightforward. And you can have a society that in many ways is morally deplorable, that is highly, highly stable. And I think it's interesting because a lot of early Christians had this experience. They felt that the Roman Empire was a very immoral state, and yet the Roman Empire did not go away. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Roman Empire continued to not go away. And ultimately, uh, I think some Christians imagined that by Christianizing the Roman Empire, they were potentially saving it. Uh, but in many ways, the Roman Empire affected Christianity more than Christianity affected it. Uh, and I would, I would go so far as to say that, yeah, yeah, the Roman Empire affected Christianity more than Christianity affected it. I, I thought I was saying that the, the state's not just caring about order, but also morality, being more moral than its own citizens by keeping this order going in a way that's not completely arbitrary. Well, it, it has to be at some minimal level responsible enough to maintain order, but that responsibility doesn't have to reside in particular people if the institutions compel behavior that is responsible, minimally responsible, only in the sense of which ultimately when there's a, co a contest between the maintenance of order and whatever other goals that people might have, they're compelled to choose the path with ma which maintains order. If you have to choose the path which maintains order, even if you're a terrible person who would left to your own devices, you know, put yourself ahead of the public good, if you're still in an incentive structure which compels you to behave this way, which at the final instance will align your good with the public good, that prevents the state from collapsing. 
So, for instance, there are a lot of American politicians who would love to you know, potentially disrupt all sorts of stuff for their own private gain. But when they're actually in a situation where they have to make the decision, if they behave that way, they may get voted out of office because the level of disruption that they would cause through that behavior would make them unelectable. And that ultimately forces people to behave in, in the electable fashion. And if you disrupt trade in the United States, that is the quickest way to make yourself unelectable. If you cause good shortages, if you cause supply chain problems, if you cause inflation, that's the quickest way to become unelectable in this country. So while I think there are a lot of people who would like to disrupt the status quo in the United States in ways that many people might consider irresponsible from the point of view of respecting order, from the point of view of order maintenance, okay, leaving aside whether we think the order is good, uh, a lot of, of those people are still, in the final instance, compelled by electoral incentives to maintain the status quo in which trade continues to function. And this has been kind of the, the argument I've been making about coronavirus uh, you know, on my blog. It, it's just a lot of people, I think, imagined that the state was going to be able to prioritize fighting coronavirus ahead of maintaining supply chains. And in the final instance, the state will always have to prioritize the maintenance of supply chains because in the United States, the quickest way to be run out of office is to fail to maintain supply chains. And right now, if you go into a Walmart in the United States, you can get most of what you need, but there are some shelves where stuff is a little thin and the inflation rate is not, you know, it's not hyperinflation, but it's 7%, which is not as low as people are accustomed to. And this is enough that Joe Biden is, is politically in a horrible position going into the midterms. And, and unless things change very, very quickly, the Democrats are going to lose very badly in the midterms due solely to relatively minor disruptions to the supply chain, relatively mild spike in inflation relative to what's possible and what we've seen in other countries and other, other times in history. Uh, ultimately, the electoral incentive will overcome any particular value-based goals that people in this system have. And that's why the electoral system has this enormously disciplining role, even on people who are individually potentially uh, wildly at variance with order and don't prioritize it really at all. I don't think of it. Uh, and here talking about order is maintaining the system of trade, maintaining the peace, which allows for trade to continue. Uh, just uh, always, always wanting to put it first. At, at, in the end, even if individually they might want to go away from that. And I think that's the, the source of the underlying strength of the United States is that it is able to compel people at, in the end to prioritize maintaining the system of trade, maintaining global supply chains, maintaining the global economic system. That's, that's ultimately what keeps the United States going. And it doesn't require virtuous politicians to do that. It just requires politicians who want to win elections. Okay, we're at just over an hour. We should probably leave it there. But you had one more question. I'll let you. I'll let yeah, you because we barely mentioned the genealogy of liberty. We said a lot about genealogy yeah, of state, did. but I, maybe I was going to tie it to the whole liberty thing by saying how, uh, yeah, just trade the market that really allows for the strongest concept or the thickest conception of liberty, as, as Skinner puts it, uh, maybe ever. This kind of neo-Roman idea where you define liberty against slavery and dependence and separate it from more liberal definitions as, yeah, 
being interfered yeah, with, of course. The non, yeah, the non-dependence or non-domination view, which is Skinner's view of liberty and is the kind of a neo-Republican view, in some ways, it's very demanding potentially because if you think about dependence in a wide sense, there are a lot of different relationships in which you're potentially dependent on someone or dominated by someone. To be dependent on someone, it just has to be the case that you have to be careful around them because they have the power to interfere in your life, right? So if you just have to self-censor around someone because someone has the ability to arbitrarily affect the course of your life in ways that cause you grief, you know, that in and of itself is a dependence relationship and therefore, from Skinner's point of view, unfreedom. So if your employer can intervene in your life, if, you're, uh, if you have a partner in a uh, relationship who can intervene in your life in ways that make you have to walk on eggshells around them. Anybody you have to walk on eggshells around, you are dependent on and they're potentially dominating you. So it makes a lot of everyday relationships into problems from the point of view of liberty when you define it that way. On the other side, it is still, I think, a thinner notion of liberty than the classical notion, which would identify liberty not just with not being a slave, but with owning slaves and getting the benefits that you get when you own slaves. A lot of classical Republicans think a free person has to not just be free from slavery, but they have to own slaves so that they have time to do all sorts of other things. Uh, it's not enough to not be enslaved. You have to have the time asset, which you can only acquire through other people's work. But what about machines and employees and things like that, which take the place of slaves and would, if they weren't there, would be slaves still? Nowadays, that's the dream. That's once you've got those things, you've got the free time to do whatever matters to you. So you've got your slaves. Right. Well, of course, if you have employees from the Skinnerian point of view, those employees are dependent on you for a wage. So those employees are not free. So you have a problem uh, because if we're going to focus on non-domination or non-dependence, then we can't have the kinds of slave relationships among people or relations of domination or dependence among people, which provided for freedom in the full-throated classical Republican sense. Now, machines are the interesting out. And I think a lot of people are interested in the possibility of machines taking on the role which slaves played in classical Republicanism. Because if machines could take on that role, then you could get the benefits of slavery without the downsides. As long as they're not conscious or whatever. What's the word? Right. Agents. Well, and then we get into these questions about, you know, if a machine is good enough to help us out in the way that a human being would help us out, would they potentially be conscious? Uh, would they be rushing up against that? So it's the big dilemma is if you're going to take freedom as seriously as the ancients took freedom, then you end up having to potentially bring in something which performs the role of slaves. And if uh, and I think that's a big part of why Skinnerian non-domination, non-dependence is a little bit of a fudge between the classical account and liberal accounts. It is an attempt to bring in elements of the classical account without all of the baggage that potentially comes with trying to completely realize the classical vision. I thought it's okay to just bring in some of that baggage and say, look, third world style jobs or just poor jobs in this country are the price you pay for you know, making it as a businessman or whatever. Oh, yeah. Some people feel that they way. They do, yeah. yeah. And I think that there's a chunk of people on the right who have always liked classical republicanism because they don't really have a problem with those relationships. They view them as just kind of inevitable uh, or even natural. I think there are a lot of people that you could find in Silicon Valley who think that there are some people who are just naturally not uh, suited to make decisions about 
Uh, oftentimes they frame it in market terms, like Elon Musk makes the argument that he is fit to make decisions about how to invest and other people aren't because they're proven to not have the skills and talents necessary to make money off their investments. And so for someone like Elon Musk, that kind of old school, old fashioned classical conception where there are firmly stipulated different classes, some of which are subservient to others, it's not very far from what he already kind of believes. And so there's a chunk of, of people in the Bay Area on the right who are interested in reviving uh, class structures, the, the tr uh, you know, really, really sharp class structures. We have class structures, of course, but really heavily demarcated, uh, blatantly demarcated class structures. The issue is politically, that is not something that you can easily do. And so people who want to bring back elements of ancient politics into modernity are instead often following Quentin Skinner, following Philip Pettit and others in hybridizing with modern liberalism rather than straightforwardly uh, going after it from the classical point of view. Oh, one more thing, like, could the left be open about that and say, look, I mean, as long as you're in that position of freedom or non-dependence, so you're the boss and you can have a meaningful job, uh, you just have to accept that the price for that is kind of slaves beneath you. And at least if we're honest well, about well, it. Well, I think the left, is, the left is interested in getting everybody to the same level. So for the left, th the question is, is everybody going to be a master or is everybody going to be a slave? Because there are two versions of leftism. If, if you're focused on getting everybody to the same level, there's everybody as a master, in which case everybody would need machines to take care of them and allow them to have the free time so that they can exercise liberty in the classical sense. Or everybody can be a slave and nobody can be a master and everybody can be denied the opportunity to do the things that people in the ancient world would do with their leisure time. And I think a lot of 20th century versions of leftism have tended to be everybody's a slave as opposed to everybody's a master. Because technologically in the 20th century, making everybody a master was not really achievable. Uh, although there were in, in the Eastern Bloc, you know, some states that were interested in cybernetics and in automation and in the possibilities of technology. And a lot of old school Marxism includes this idea that capitalism exists to develop technology to the point at which it becomes possible to uh, ha more heavily automate the economy. And it's the automation of the economy which drives uh, labor to become less valuable and, and potentially ignites the revolution in uh, some old school Marxist accounts. Having said that, actually existing communist states tended to instead create a situation in which everybody was dependent on the state rather than one in which everybody was uh, free. Why can't the left be authentic if, it's, it doesn't, if it abandons that unfair binary between everyone either being a master or being a slave by just saying, look, let's be honest about what the terms mean. And then once we do that, as in once those terms have meaningful content in the debate, whenever people use them, it starts the evolution towards everyone becoming a master and everyone becoming a slave. But not just legislating equality of outcome there and then, which has been the failure of the left always, as the right sees it, as just trying to level the playing field artificially. Well, the use of class language is, of course, an important objective for lots of people on the left. The idea that we need to be class conscious, that we need to make more frequent reference to the class categories, that people need to be able to see that these class relations exist and that these continued relations of domination exist and that some people are, in a sense, uh, masters and other people are, in a sense, wage slaves. That is a point that a lot of different leftists who want to undermine the reification of 
class uh, have have emphasized. Uh, they want to undermine the reification of social roles, undermine the reification of uh, of jobs, uh, where people think of themselves as their job and they don't treat the class as a uh, social, a sociological phenomenon, a consequence of the way things are organized, uh, and therefore something that could potentially be revised if things are organized differently. Instead, think of themselves as the thing, as the role, as the person. So, yes, I think it's very important to the left that we we talk more blatantly and openly about ideas of domination, ideas of who is dominating, who is being dominated, and you know, therefore relations of of master slave relations of employer-employee. And that's part of why I often like to bring up that kind of language. I do think it's important and valuable that we confront those relationships where they exist and talk about what would it mean to have better relationships uh, and how could we politically get there. That's part of why I come back to that idea a lot on the podcast. <sighs> yeah. But getting your opponents to do it as well, to talk in that language, that would yeah. be important. Yeah. Even if they're for yeah, if you can get the right to acknowledge those categories, you know, even if they're for master-slave relationships, if you if you can get them to acknowledge that that's what they're for, um, then yeah, that helps to heighten the contradictions and and uh, make make things a little bit easier for people to see, and then easier for people to potentially respond to do something about the the hypocrisy that David Runciman talks about. It's very useful in concealing these relationships. And making the you know, violence that occurs harder to confront. David would argue that the hypocrisy helps to still force the state to be nicer because the state has to maintain the fiction. But the fiction also gets in the way of actually confronting and overcoming some of the things that uh, we're papering over with the fiction. So I think there's an argument the other way. And I think this is part of why Skinner ultimately takes things in a different direction from David Runciman. David thinks that the liberal hypocrisy is the best that we can do. And Skinner, I think, thinks that if we could get out from under that, if we could find a way to uh, you know, confront these relationships of domination and dependence, uh, that that could be a generative process. Uh, and yeah, I have a lot of respect for both of them. I think they're both, uh, both bright people. All right, so we'll wrap up for today. Thank you guys for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.